You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan, here to bring sunshine into our listeners' lives, but mostly just your life, Wade. You know, Kevin, we're just a couple of guys, snappy dressers, uh, some would even call us gentlemen. Yes, gentlemen in the Victorian sense, not the Guy Ritchie sense, fortunately. Fortunately, listeners, on today's episode of Seeing and Believing, we're going to be talking about said Guy Ritchie's newest action comedy, The Gentleman. We'll also be offering up our review of the new film from Makoto Shinkai, the director of the acclaimed film from 2017, Your Name. This one is titled, Weathering With You. It's raining bullets? On this episode, episode 234 of Seeing and Believing. There once was a young and foolish dragon who came to ask a wise and cunning lion about acquiring his territory. Now the lion, he wasn't interested, so he told the little dragon to but the dragon, he persisted. How could he? He started a war. So the lion took the little dragon for a walk and put five bullets in his little dragon head. He's warming up now, isn't it? There's a message in there. Maybe you can explain it to me. The young succeed the old. Enjoy the show. Bang, 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 bang. It's gonna get messy. Listeners, that is a clip from The Gentleman. We're going to hop into our review here in just a moment on episode 234. In the second segment, we're going to be talking about weathering with you. And Kevin, I'm going to go into the synopsis for The Gentleman here soon. But I wanted to ask you this question before we get started. If you had to dress like any leading character in The Gentleman, which character would you be more likely? I'm, I'm laughing just thinking about this. Which character would you be more likely to dress like? Oh, anyone who knows me in real life will not be at all surprised that I would say that Colin Farrell's character is 100% the character whose fashion sense I share. Just lots of plaid, just a very, you know, glasses. Not exactly the most fashion forward chap on the block, but. You know, it is what it is. No, it is what it is. That I, I think that's a really good one. I'm I'm thinking Matthew McConaughey, and here's the reason, is because he is an American in Great Britain, and he's obviously he is a Texan, and I feel like his dress borders in some scenes on trying too hard to to look British. And so that would probably be me, uh someone who's not British doesn't have much of a fashion sense to be really just kind of pushing that. Uh, so Matthew McConaughey. You, you'd be eager to assimilate into the <laughs> into the British uh, society, would yeah. you? No, okay. I, I would. But I, I have this. My grandmother was born and raised in England. She is British. Uh, she was British. And so I have British blood in me. So I, I maybe I could pull off a little bit, but it would all probably fall apart pr- pretty quickly. It, it would definitely fall apart once you tried to actually speak with the British accent. <laughs> so this is, this is a little bit off topic, but um, uh, people talk about uh, things that just drive them crazy. You know what's nails on a chalkboard for me is people who are not English, 
but they try to play around and speak in a British accent for fun. When people do that, it's just, it's, it, it really is nails on a chalkboard. I cannot stand it. I don't know why. I just can't do it. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's probably a good thing then that you never actually came to one of my improv shows back when I did improv <laughs> on stage because I was notorious for not being able to do any sort of accent at all. And every time I tried, it was kind of a traveling accent. So it would start off British and then become Russian and then become Irish and then become like American okay. South. And so if bad British accents were like nails on chalkboard to you, my traveling accent probably would have been like a, a symphony of nails mm. on a chalkboard to you. So okay. good thing that we met after, after I kind of retired from that scene. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I don't know why it just, even, even accents that are pretty good. It, if I know that that person is not English, it just, it's so, it's so difficult. Anyway, listeners, we're going to jump into our first review of the day. Here's the film's official synopsis. From writer-director Guy Ritchie comes The Gentleman, a star-studded, sophisticated action comedy. The Gentleman follows American expat Mickey Pearson, played by Matthew McConaughey, who built a highly profitable marijuana empire in London. When word gets out that he's looking to cash out of the business forever, it triggers plots, schemes, bribery, and blackmail in an attempt to steal his domain out from under him. The film also features an all-star ensemble cast that includes Charlie Hunnam, Henry Golding, Michelle Dockery, Colin Farrell, and Hugh Grant. Kevin, I have not had a chance to see some of Richie's acclaimed crime pictures, particularly Snatch and Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. I have, however... Heard from many that the gentleman looks to be a return to form for the director, seeing him shed big blockbusters like Aladdin and King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, for a smaller picture that involves smooth-talking gangsters and more than enough gunshot wounds. As we begin our discussion, I'd like to ask you what you think of the gentleman in regards to Richie's previous work and where you think this style lands in 2020. Do we need another crime picture like The Gentleman? Yeah, well, Guy Ritchie really made his name off of these sort of, you know, cockney, uh, goodfellas kinds of, kinds of films where the plots are labyrinthine and everybody's kind of got this, this, you know, working class British accent and they're all very, very verbose, almost in a Tarantino-like molds. That like I feel like there's a lot of similarity in the writing ear uh, between Richie and Tarantino. Um, so the gentleman is definitely a return to form. There, I, I it's been a while since I've seen Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels and Snatch. I remember not caring much for Lockstock and being pretty entertained with Snatch, enjoying it a fair amount. The Gentleman is the sort of movie that really makes me want to go back and revisit those earlier pictures. Not because it has really whet my appetite to re-enter that world some more, like get more of that in my bloodstream, but more because I want to go back and rewatch them to see if they were always, if, if this genre of that Guy Ritchie kind of is the figurehead of, 
if it was always as bad as the gentleman makes it look. <laughs> I really dislike the gentleman. And I, I'm trying to think back, especially to Snatch, which I think is at, at the time, you know, I haven't seen it in about 10 years. At the time, I thought it was, you know, kind of this rollicking, you know, black humored kind of crime picture. And that was about it. A little bit irreverent, but watching the gentleman and the the nonstop litany of just foul language, misogynistic language, race, you know, like racism and other slurs. Like, I, I know that some of that was in Snatch, but was it here to this extent? I honestly don't remember. And I, based on the evidence in Gentleman, I'm a little bit scared to go back to find out. You don't want to ruin the memory. I, You know, Snatch is one of those that I, it's been on my list for so long. And I, every time I almost get to it, something happens and I, I just don't have a chance to watch it. I, I think there are sections of The Gentleman that work pretty well. I am a little skeptical of the film as a whole. I'm skepti- skeptical of, of, I guess you could say the point. What, what is the point of this movie? And that's kind of a weird thing to say about art. But you, you watch this film, and as you mentioned, uh, the language, the innuendos, the violence, the racial slurs, you get through all of it, and you say, okay, now, now what is Richie trying to say? What, what is all of this for? And some of the scenes I think work pretty well, and I think the scenes that do work well are the scenes that find a way to mix this sort of serious black comedy with bigger ideas. In the end, those ideas fall short. They're not explored to their fullest extent, and we, we don't really get much of anything. And so while I walk away from this movie saying, okay, there's some talent there, and I enjoyed sections of it, I just... I, I don't I don't feel any desire to see it again. And I'm kind of scratching my head saying, okay, well, well what now? If, if that makes sense. It makes sense. And, and this is kind of why I'm wondering about Snatch because Snatch is sort of, it's, they're, you know, it's, it's extremely, extremely vulgar and violent and, and all of the same things that the gentleman is, or at least as far as my memory serves me. But there's, it's kind of a style over substance thing. Like you, you, you go to a Guy Ritchie crime film, and you go not because you want, not because you want or even expect a serious-minded look at you know at a crime world or any serious attempt to to grapple with the characters or even really develop them all that much. And it doesn't really matter because the style and sort of the zip of the filmmaking is really why you're going. It's why, you know. Uh, Tarantino kind of made his bones with with Pulp Fiction, where the style of the film is just so thrilling and, and overwhelming that the fact that it's kind of not really grappling in any substantive way with with its characters' inner lives or anything like that is is a little bit beside the point. And I get that, but with the gentleman, it it really does seem as if. There is sort of this so what hanging over the entire film that really makes the viewer ask, like, why am I grappling, like, why am I exposing myself to all of the this 
vulgarity and racism and violence. What What is the point of being exposed to this if I'm not having fun? And if I'm not having fun, is that due to the style or due to the sheer overwhelming nastiness of some of the subject matter? It's hard to put my finger on that. And it's why I'm wondering if, you know, if 2020 Kevin went back and watched Snatch back in college, which is when I first saw it, would I would he still have the same reaction? Or is there indeed something in the way that Richie has built out Snatch that is just missing from the gentleman? It's really hard to tell. And I do kind of wonder if part of it is due to the fact that the gentleman does seem to be trying to mount some sort of self-critique that I don't know that Snatch does. And in doing so, maybe the gentleman opens itself up to being critiqued in ways that Snatch didn't. And that really exposes Richie's vulnerabilities. And, and I think that's a good way to put it because the film seems to suggest it is a, possibly about late capitalism. Uh, it's about the upper class and the lower class. It's about gun control, maybe. It's about power and sexuality, but that's about it. There are these ideas that are kind of introduced and then left hanging, and so you get characters who are saying these very horrible things, and the film wants us to laugh at them and say, oh yeah, this is funny how nasty they are, but then what do we do with that? And I realize this is kind of a difficult... It's difficult to put my finger on it because there are some films that can do that and you walk away and you say, okay, that was there for a specific reason and the film is trying to say something. I think The Hateful Eight is a great example of this and I like Tarantino. I know you like many of Tarantino's films and he finds a way to do this many times and, and to do it well. Uh, here we, we just don't get that. Now, there are some scenes that I think are really good. I think many of the performances are, are pretty good. And and let me give you one as an example. I think Charlie Hunnam, he's he's pretty he, he's he's pretty solid in this picture. And yeah. there's this scene where he goes into a building because he's trying to get a young teenage girl out of a difficult situation. And she's with some junkies and he walks into the room and it's it's really tense. You don't know what's going to happen. Uh, you don't know what kind of explosive violence is going to occur next. And then the film kind of just does this interesting twist and it almost becomes this comedy foot chase. And in those moments, I'm looking at this and saying, okay, Richie has a handle on the style. He has a handle on what he wants to do. He has a handle on these emotions. It, it is kind of fun in some ways. But then there are these long stretches where the film is dragging, sections where the movie just can't handle that. It doesn't have that type of balance. And so that's why I'm just kind of shaking my head at the end. Yeah, there's... um. There's a strain of Richie seeming as if he's he's kind of self-aware with what he's doing here. The the bulk of the film's story is framed uh, as if Hugh Grant's character, who's kind of a slimy paparazzi private investigator journalist sort, a freelance photographer, um, who has uncovered the 
the uh, under the table dealings and all of the backstabbing that's surrounding McConaughey's character as he seeks to retire from the crime world. And so we get kind of the sense that Richie is essentially aligning himself as a storyteller with this very sleazy, very oily Hugh Grant character and suggesting that in the same way that Grant is sort of spicing things up and, and really kind of tittering a little bit at how naughty it all is that these, you know, these characters are, you know, murdering each other or humiliating each other in horrible ways. Richie is kind of suggesting that maybe he's a little bit like that too. He's, he, he's a little bit childish. He's a little bit, uh, uh, disreputable and that maybe the audience is as well for, uh, partaking in that with him, which, I think is an interesting idea as far as it goes. I, where the film gets away from him, though, is that he kind of posits that idea, but the rest of the film is not really as self-aware as that kind of subtext. So I guess what I'm talking about is when you look at McConaughey's character, it, for, for that critique to really land, there would have to be some sort of awareness in the way that McConaughey's character is framed, the way he's characterized, the, way, the note that the film ends on with his character, you'd kind of have to get a sense that the the film isn't just going to say, aren't you bad for watching this, and then giving you kind of all the fun fireworks of being a gangster. It's going to actually want to make you stop and take pause in the uh, actual filmmaking techniques itself. I don't think Richie really does that. I think McConaughey's character, by the end of the film, he's kind of like, he's the cool guy. He's the guy who wears the nice suits, who is sort of the master of his crime universe. And by the end of the film, it's not really clear that we're not supposed to like him. And that, I think, undercuts the irony maybe that, that Richie is going for here. Even the irony of the film's title, The Gentleman, is, is pretty clearly meant to be like, these are not gentlemen. These are you know, very grubby, uh, backstabbing sorts of people who just like to think of themselves as gentlemen of the crime world. I get that, but I think Richie buys too much into his character's hype for that critique to really feel like it has any weight to it. Yeah, and well, and Matthew McConaughey, at the beginning of the film and at the end of the film, he says the same thing. He says, if you wish to be the king of the jungle, you can't just act like the king. You must be the king. And... That sets up this, I don't know, this interesting dynamic. What does it mean to be on top? How does that look? And him and his crew do some very terrible things. And when you do get to the end, and he is the king, and he is wearing the clothes, uh, and there's no, there really is no critique, it, it does make me kind of scratch my head. And, and, and it goes back to... I. I got to make a distinction between something like this and maybe like John Wick. There is some sort of critique about violence and revenge in John Wick a little bit, but there's craft there. You are in this fascinating world and you can almost sit back and marvel at the techniques that are on the screen for what's happening and you don't get that here. So it, it does feel a little bit odd. And I think the premise here in The Gentleman is I think it's actually pretty good. It's this is basically an acquisitions deal. Uh, 
Matthew McConaughey is selling his marijuana, his illegal marijuana business. That's kind of fun because these characters are talking about valuations. They're talking about distribution. They're talking about passing the reins to somebody else and that person thinking about the value of the business in the long term. I think that's interesting. I think that's a lot of fun to play with those numbers. Uh, But how does that figure into his desire to, to get out of this world? And then what what could draw him back in? What could go wrong? And we see someone who wants to get away from it all, and we see that spark light something bigger. So there is this, there is this element to the plot where we're like, hey, even when you try to get out of something, there are consequences for what you have done. I just don't know if the film really digs into that. And you have Hugh Grant, you have this almost meta quality to this film. He's telling the events of the story as if it were a movie. And so we don't always know what's real and what's not real. And there also seems to be this element of how are, how are real life stories adapted? And you see these movies coming out almost immediately after the events that occurred uh, to spawn those movies. And what does that mean? And the film doesn't really do anything about that. And I, I, I guess I walked away kind of wondering, well, why is Hugh Grant here? I mean, he's he's kind of funny. Uh, he provides this interesting framing device, but I'm not so sure that he is fully integrated into the story. It feels like the story wants him to be integrated, and, and it's not. And so there's part of the element of this movie is it just feels like it's kind of going in a lot of different places. Well, at the end of the day, too, you can't really take any of this metafictional critique on Richie's part seriously because you get the sense that he's not really serious about it himself. I kind of, I, as a viewer, I, and I trust I'm probably not alone in this. I kind of resent being, you know, having a filmmaker wag his finger at me with one hand for enjoying all the depravity on screen while with the other hand, he's eagerly shoving, shoveling it out and seems to enjoy, enjoy it just as much, if not more, than the purported audiences. I think that's kind of the difference between something like this film and, say, you know, Mike, Michael Haneke's uh, Funny Games, which kind of does the same thing, where it gives you, you know, a lot of thriller movie tropes and a lot of violence, and then really confronts you with your decision to watch it and what your expectations are for that experience. I think it's a really effective movie, and I think it's confrontational in a really morally serious way. Similarly, I think that something like The Wolf of Wall Street, which is definitely not short on depictions of depravity, has a moral seriousness to it uh, in, in Scorsese's directing in the way that he really makes it clear that the audience in watching Jordan Belfort is just like the the people at the end of The Wolf of Wall Street who really kind of want to be Jordan Belfort. And that kind of parallel is something that really recontextualizes all the depravity on screen in that film. In this film, I don't really think that there is any recontextualization. I think it's more just Guy Ritchie wants to have his cake and eat it too, where he he wants to kind of indulge his appetite for violence and for saying naughty words and for really caricaturing in some pretty horrible ways 
uh, Jewish people and Chinese people. He wants to kind of indulge all that, but he also wants to have a fig leaf of this metafictional angle where he kind of gets to say, but I'm not really serious. It's all just a joke. And I, I think that's frankly kind of offensive. Yeah, it's it's definitely something that needs to be considered with this movie. And I, I think there, there are going to be elements that people will enjoy. And I mentioned some of the performances. I think that Colin Farrell, he, he's a pretty funny actor. And when he's in his element, um, he he's hilarious. And I think he can be hilarious here. A lot of people are talking about Michelle Dockery. She does well. I wish there was more with her. And I think that that could have helped to expand some of the myth- thematic material that Richie seems to touch on. Uh, but overall, while some of it's entertaining, it just, and, and maybe that's why I just keep going back to the point of what, what, what's it for? You know, what, what is this, what is this kind of all about? And I just can't really justify what's there. And I, I went in looking for something that is a romp that is fun and just you just you know didn't find it <laughs> yeah it's it's definitely a romp but at some point kind of the especially a christian viewer has to ask themselves you know at what cost does do we indulge in a romp like that and i think at least for me the the gentleman comes down on the wrong side of that line Listeners, that is our review of The Gentleman. We would love to hear your thoughts, whether you agree or disagree with us. Make sure to tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod on Twitter. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking about weathering with you here in just a few minutes. That song is Wind by Bew. Listeners, we want to let you know how much we appreciate everyone who's become a member of our Patreon campaign. When you do that, you support the podcast and and really you, you keep us going. Just head on over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast to be a part of our Patreon campaign. We have a number of different levels of donation and all those come with perks of some sort. And one of the ones that we really enjoy is the what can you buy for $5 level. And Kevin, I was thinking about that and I wanted to ask you, what could someone buy for five bucks? Five bucks would buy you a large jar of sand. So if you're kind of looking to escape from the dire state of the world these days, you can always just stick your head right in there. 
and you take it with you wherever you go. <laughs> and if you know your agriculture well, you can find certain plants that grow in sand and you could create a nice little oasis and you really get the <laughs> desert feel without being in the desert. It's, yeah, it's hey, a win. Yeah. And hey, you know, we're not here to police anybody's use of sand, though I will note that any uh, Jedi on their way towards the dark side, I've, I've heard that they don't like sand. So it's not recommended for uh, young people. Uh, dark side adjacent force users. We'll just say that. Yeah. Well, but you can bury lightsabers in the sand. Uh, that might That's be true. might be a rise of Skywalker spoiler, but you could you could put them in the sand or your head, whichever one. Listeners, we really <laughs> appreciate you becoming a member of our Patreon campaign. Once again, that's patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. Yeah, we, we really appreciate your support. We also appreciate your support if you prefer, instead of becoming a Patreon supporter, if you choose to shoot your hard-earned dollars in the direction of ChristandPopCulture.com, becoming a Christ and Pop Culture member gets you all sorts of perks. You get free member offerings. You get access to the uh, members-only group on Facebook. You also really enable some great writing to go up on the site. Uh, this week, Wade, actually, as of this recording, I think it was today, uh, our own KB Hoyle wrote a piece for her storied column about the film 1917, which you and I reviewed on last week's episode. Yeah, as she wrote the piece called 1917's One-Shot Narrative and the Wayfaring Stranger. And she talks about the one-shot uh, that the film is composed of. And, you know, Kevin, we, we mentioned that in our review last week. I found it more effective than you did. And so for listeners who maybe want to explore that a little bit deeper as well as dig into what that means for the film and what that means about the nature of war itself, uh, you can hop on over to ChristandPopCulture.com. It's there, it's available, and we appreciate everyone who supports Christ and Pop Culture because you make writing like this possible. Yes, thanks to uh, KB Hoyle for, for writing that piece. Even if I don't, don't agree with her estimation of the merits of the single take, uh, conceit in that film. It's always great to get other perspectives. Listeners, we all always crave your perspectives as well. If you have any thoughts about the films that we're reviewing this week or about 1917, which seems to be the presumptive Oscar winner, we'd love to hear them. Send us your thoughts by Twitter or email. We always love to hear them. <laughs> We're back with the second half of our show, and you should be thankful, Wade, that I resisted the temptation just now to uh, say that first sentence in this introduction in my best slash worst Cockney accent. <laughs> I do this because I'm your friend. I, I, I'm a little worried because... I gave you my kryptonite. I told you, and now uh -huh. you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
Yeah, you you showed your soft underbelly to me, Wade, and it's only a matter of time. I'm mm. just gonna just gonna say that much. Yeah. Well, if I disagree with you on a film and you just feel strongly, I think I think you know what to do. It might <laughs> might just change my opinion. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll see about that. We are going to be talking about a film in the second segment, so that might give me a chance to try things out a little bit. We're going to be reviewing the new film Weathering with You, which is directed by Makoto Shinkai, the director of the acclaimed 2017 film Your Name. This film, Weathering with You, follows a 16-year-old boy named Hodaka who runs away from his remote island home to Tokyo and quickly finds himself pushed to his financial and personal limits. The weather is unusually gloomy and rainy every day, and Hodaka struggles to make ends meet, eating eating at fast food restaurants and sleeping on the street. His life changes with two events. The editor of an occult magazine takes him under his wing, and he meets Hina, a girl who possesses the mysterious power to control the weather and make the sun shine. So Wade, you and I, uh, we both saw your name uh, way back in 2017, and this film, like that one, has some supernatural elements to it in telling its uh, story that's pretty recognizable to, to most audiences as a sort of teen romance. I am curious to know, Wade, what you thought of Weathering With You, how you think of it as a follow-up to Your Name, which we both liked, and what you think the two have in common thematically, as well as genre-wise. Yeah, no, that's a good question. And Your Name, I mean, it's difficult not to compare this movie to Your Name because that was such a huge success, and it made so much money, and it was highly acclaimed. And we don't usually review anime pictures but that was one that uh that we did review and and it was a pretty popular review and and for good reason this film is not as good as as your name and it it almost feels i almost feel bad saying that just comparing the two because i i did really like your name uh it's it's not as good but but i think it's a pretty decent picture i'm not over the moon about it i think thematically and even just with kind of the story structure this film treads similar territory as your name. You have these two young lovers who are kept apart by a supernatural event of sorts, a force, and they have to find a way to return to each other, and they have to find a way to overcome a natural calamity. So there is a natural disaster at the center of both of these pictures. And I think when you kind of boil them down, you get young people trying to cope in an adult world. And that's really what you you get here too. Now, like I said, I think this is a, is a good film and I think some of the themes are emphasized differently in here versus your name. But y- you have this, this similar territory that's explored. And I mean, if you know how to do something well, then you know might as well do it. So I, I don't know if I can even fault the the film for that. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm going to say right off the bat that this movie, to it, you know, if it if I had seen it as my very emo teenage self way back when, I would have eaten this movie up with a spoon. I think that Shinkai does really well with capturing a very certain kind of emotional 
rawness in in this film and in your name that is very effective for the mode he's working in with the team Romans. I think that there's this there's there, there's this emotional nakedness to a lot to so much of the film. There's these you know musical montages where there's a a pop song playing on the soundtrack while we see you know, see the characters you know going through their day or, or time passing for them and that's a device that you don't see as often these days in american films or at least not uh <clears throat> at least not american films that that aren't made for for younger children but in this film and in your name i think those largely i don't i don't know that they entirely work for me but i get that they serve an important function in the film, which is to sort of sweep you away with the same kinds of simple, large emotions that its protagonists feel. And I think that it's to be commended for that. I don't think it's as good as your name, and I think it's partly because it goes broad in ways that your name didn't, and that your name was better off for not going in. So there's there's some issues with some of the plotting in this film, and Maybe a little bit of, it's a little bit more complex than it needs to be. I think this is a story that has a lot of narrative rabbit trails that were probably best left unexplored, which keep me from loving it. But I have to say, if you're in the target demographic of this film, which is to say emo teenagers, this 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 movie will get you there. <laughs> for, for all the emo teenagers listening to the show. Yeah, I, I think part of the film... Uh, film's weakness is this almost extended chase scene at the end it gets uh it, it feels like it deviates from its course towards the back half of the movie now i i do like many of the features you mentioned some of these montages and uh you kind of expect them in a film like this and some of them are they work better than others you've got the meat cute right it's done pretty well. You have these it, this, these characters who are uh, trying to express their feelings, but they just can't do it. And so, like me on this episode, they kind of stutter more than usual. And uh, all all that, I think, I think it works pretty well. And visually, here, this is one of those films that. Uh, the compositions lend itself to the story. And so what you have is not just a natural disaster. You don't just have a lot of rain in Tokyo just for the sake of the rain. But the way the way that Shinkai films these scenes, I say films, directs these scenes, animates these scenes, it really does feel like the city is crying that these characters are trying to find a way to to make it and the compositions lend themselves to those feelings to that to that angst to that struggle and we also get some beautiful moments of of sunlight and it invokes the feelings uh, that you get when it has been raining for a long time and the weather has been horrible. And yeah, you know, like, like here in Houston, when it has been flooding and then the sun comes out and there's this, there's just a feeling that you get. And the film invokes that feeling when you do see those momentary glimpses of the sun. And that in of itself is a reflection of the warmth that these characters show. So I do have to give it up for, for Shinkai and the way that he does animate this movie. And um, he does so in a very thoughtful way. Yeah, Shinkai uh, 
directs this film really well for sure and his team of animators deserve a lot of credit for the way that they're able to there is you know it's not completely hand-drawn but the way that it it melds both hand-drawn and digitally created images is really really something and quite beautiful in some places i'm thinking especially of a sequence with fireworks where um hina has used her power to sort of chase away the rain and give clear weather so that a fireworks display can go on and she and Hidoka are kind of they're, they're sitting on the roof of a building and they're watching it happen and uh shinkai kind of makes his camera swoop through you know go through the sky in the midst of these fireworks so there there's literally lights exploding uh, in the foreground of the screen while we move forward towards this couple sitting together on on the rooftop. And I think that that's the sort of... Um, there's kind of, a, a, like I said earlier, kind of there, there's this an emotional, really just swing for the fences kind of quality to that sequence that really buttresses the the emotions of the script so that we in the audience can kind of Intern a little bit, even if we, it's been a long time since we too were teenagers with crushes on somebody, we too can kind of remember a little bit what that feeling was like simply through image. And I think that that's really special. It, I, yeah. It, well, it too, going with that, the, the balance between the, the detailed oriented images where you get, you know, name brands and McDonald's and then the fantastical images and kind of balancing both of that. There's a lot of detail here. And, and then there's a lot of, of beauty. There's this great scene where he receives, the main character receives a burger from McDonald's and the burger looks delicious. And just kind of the way that that plays out, it, it's, it's fantastic. And it, you know, like you said, the, the animators did a great job here. Yeah, uh, I I wish in, in some ways that the the script had had kind of that same kind of I, I don't want to say delicacy. Delicacy isn't isn't the right word, but in these images, there's the sense that Shinkai really knows how to how to build towards an emotional moment through image in a way that is grand, but is also not not broad or overblown or manipulative and i think that that kind that same kind of sensitivity is maybe missing a little bit from the characterization or or the plotting you mentioned that that film ending chase sequence which does go too long and is a little bit i don't know it feels like the film dips almost into a kids movie where there's this villainous police chief with this weird like elvis hairdo that's that's chasing after them and it's not really clear why he's so absolutely villainous just over this this one kid and <laughs> the yeah, world's like and, falling apart i mean the, things are being flooded people are dying and he's like finding this kid everywhere he goes it is a little strange right uh, and also the i think one thing that made your name so great is that both of the principals both the the boy and the girl were really finely shaded interesting characters I think with Weathering With You, the, there's a big weakness in the way that Hina is characterized here. She's kind of, she's a little bit like the manic pixie dream girl trope where she's just sort of, she's, she's, a, there's a little bit of, of quote unquote damage there. Like the, the main character kind of gets to know her because she, he thinks she's being sexually exploited by, 
by somebody. And so there's kind of that quality to her. But then she's also the sort of character who will, you know, laugh at everything he says, no matter how amateurish, who will cook him dinner and will do all these magical, fun things with her powers. And the problem is, I think she's not, she doesn't feel as fully fleshed out as he is. And in a film that leans so heavily on the relationship between the two, that's that's probably a weakness. Yeah, no, I, I think that there's definitely a weakness. Uh, one theme that I found fascinating with this film, and it, I would say it's on the nose, but it's, it's global warming, it's climate change, and the way that these characters kind of respond to it is fascinating because it's kind of happening as they're living their lives, and everybody's kind of just ignoring it, and then finding a way to cope with what's occurring and to forge these relationships and and to move forward in the midst of that. What might that world look like? And there are no easy answers here. And we talked about Frozen 2 and some of the deeper ideas that are in that story. And in the end, we get, oh, yeah. There really isn't a sacrifice to do the right thing. You just say you're going to do the right thing and everything's going to work out perfectly. I think this film has a, a more complicated structure to it. And even though the, the plotting gets a little, I, I, I guess it gets a little distracted at the end, we still get this feeling that there are all these rapid changes occurring to our Earth. And leading with that allegory, there's a lot of changes that happen in our lives when we're teenagers. And the biggest conflict in this story is not just the weather, but it's whether these characters will be jaded when they do become adults. So it is a film about the transition between childhood and adulthood and finding people who will believe in you and people you care about. And sometimes that's a lot more difficult than, than we think. The film's evocation of, of climate change is um I, I think it's really well done here and i part of the reason is that you think about the these characters and, and the the emotions they have where they they want to be with each other even you know nothing literally nothing else matters other than being with each other even a specter as big as that of climate change and the end of civilization as we know it that's still not enough to keep them apart in their minds. And I think Shinkai's decision to really go for that, that resonance is effective, not only because, you know, we as adults sitting in the theater kind of sense that this is, this really is a large cost, like you said, to their, their decision to, to try to remain happy. You know, there's, there, this isn't sort of a frozen two situation where magic saves the day and we're kind of, everyone lives happily ever after and pretty much everything's great. There's a cost to what they decide, but it still feels right. And most vitally, it feels right to them. They, they don't care about anyone else. They just care about each other. And that's ends up being kind of where the film leaves them without giving too much away. There's this sense that they really did sort of give up the world in order to be together. And that's, you know, in a teen romance, that's kind of the emotional register that I feel 
is effective to really go for to not spend <laughs> yeah. to not spend a lot of time really interrogating that impulse but just and not really reveling in it either but just sort of honestly portraying it through these characters perspectives and i think shinkai both in this and in your name kind of gets how to do that and to to walk that balance yeah and it too at at the end of the film they use the line hey the world's always been it's always been crazy and if you you think back throughout time and relationships and relationships have been torn apart or or have had to endure through wars through famines through different economic turmoil and this is a different type of calamity uh, a more modern calamity but the world has been crazy and the world uh, will continue to be crazy in some form or fashion and it does affect us and it does affect those relationships and trying to find a love that endures through that uh, I think is what the film is kind of going with. And yeah, I sure I would have liked some of the characters and the relationships and the plot to be a little more streamlined or uh, a little uh, a little bit more creative, uh, developed. Uh, but you know, I still walk away saying, "Hey, this is this is a pretty good movie," and I, I, I want to see where Shinkai goes next because he is a very talented director. And just these two most recent works, I haven't seen his previous works other than these two, uh, there, there's just so much realized here. Yeah, I agree that Shinkai is really a, a director to watch in the animation scene. And even though I, I walked out of, the, out of this film being left a little cold by it in the end, mostly because of the, these flaws that, that you and I have already talked about with the plotting and, and with the characterization of Hina in particular, that said, I do think that it gets the emotions right. And I think that that's really the important thing here, <laughs> more so than, than, the, um, than, than other quibbles. And like we've said before, the animation is just stunning and maybe at, at a level that um, we definitely don't see in American animation. Like I'm, I'm thinking over the other animated films that I've seen this seen over the past year and weathering with you is far and away i think the one with the most memorable images and the one with just animation that feels exciting not just like ones and zeros which isn't to say that other animated films have been are, are badly done but i just think shinkai has a sensibility that i i really appreciate Listeners, that is our review of Weathering With You. And as always, make sure to tweet us your thoughts at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. We have reached the end of the episode. This is where we recommend something from the world of television and or film to you, our listeners. Kevin, you're up first. What would you like to recommend to our listeners today? Well, Wade, since we just reviewed a, a movie from the world of Japanese animation, it seemed only fitting that I would recommend uh, a Studio Ghibli film, which is, you know, of course, Studio Ghibli is best known for the work of Hayao Miyazaki. The film I'm going to recommend today is not one of his, but it's from that studio. It's actually directed by Hiromasa Yonabayashi, and it's The Secret World of Arietti from 2010. This is a film that is a story that 
most American audiences will at least recognize it's based off of The Borrowers, the story about little people who live in the, in the walls and in the house of a normal-sized human family and the friendship that develops between uh, one of them and a young boy who, who, sees, who sees them and gets to know them. I like this film a lot. I think the, of course, it's, the animation is wonderful. I mean, that kind of is almost a boring thing to say when you talk about a, uh, a Studio Ghibli film. But I think this film in particular, I, one of the things that has dissatisfied me about previous adaptations of the borrower uh, stories is that those previous adaptations never really seem to get the scale right. It never really fully feels like the small people living in this large house that they are really part of that environment and that the environment feels plausible for both the large people and the small people. I think The Secret World of Ariety really gets that right and I think a lot of that is down to the animation and the environment. I also think it's one of the few um, few animated films where the dubbing is actually pretty good and maybe uh you know i wouldn't say on par with the original japanese voicing but normally i would suggest only watch these movies with subtitles but i think the dubbed version of secret world of Ariety is good featuring amy poehler and will arnett as the parents bridget mendler as the main character Ariety. so i i think it's it's a familiar tale but it's really well told and it's got an incredible soundtrack uh, and it's weirdly one of the Studio Ghibli films that doesn't get as much attention. So I think people should check it out. Well, I have not seen that picture and uh, it makes me excited. It, it makes me excited to hear about the dubbing, too. That's that's really great. I'm, I'm glad you included that. So I'm thinking through my pick this week and I'm going to go with probably my favorite Guy Ritchie film that I've seen in a long time. Maybe my favorite ever from him. And that's the 2015 The Man from UNCLE. This is a remake of the classic television show where a CIA agent in the 1960s works with a KGB operative. And you've got some great casting here. Henry Cavill, Army Hammer, and Alicia Vikander. This is one of those fun action pictures uh, that really plays into the espionage-fueled setting of the 1960s. I had a lot of fun with it. And many people have talked about Henry Cavill playing James Bond. You essentially get to see him play a James Bond character here. It's a pleasant surprise, and I might have talked about this film before because I really do enjoy it, but I'm hoping, I'm hoping that there is a sequel coming to it. I don't know if it's been announced. I don't even know if there are any plans for it, but uh, it's one of those few big blockbuster movies that I'm like, oh, I'd love to see what happens next. So yeah, The Man from Uncle. Yeah, the, there's actually in the background of some of the shots of the gentleman, there's actually a poster of The Man from Uncle that I noticed, which reminded me that I've heard so much about it just being a really fun lark and a good time with some charming stars. And that's the kind of Guy Ritchie film that I, I want to see. I kind of wish I was watching it instead of The Gentleman. So I'll have to bump that up on my list because I haven't gotten around to it yet. Yeah, I, I like it's just it, it feels like just a it feels like a classic picture. It, it's some of the a film that you don't get 
a lot nowadays. And so, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Listeners, as I mentioned, that's the end of our episode. We would love it if you have a chance to rate and review us on iTunes, get the word out on the podcast. Just go to iTunes and search for Seeing and Believing. You'll see our icon, click it, uh, type out a short review, give us a star rating. Like I said, we very much appreciate it. Also, our episodes are available now to listen on Spotify. So if you use Spotify, you can download our episodes and you can listen to them on the go wherever you go. Uh, So that's really exciting. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters and ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. We'll see you later. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.